now invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, I want to read the entire psalm with you in connection with Lord's Day 4, I believe. Yeah, Lord's Day 4. I want to read the entire psalm, 17 verses. Psalm 90, the superscription on mine reads, The eternity of God and man's frailty. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past. And like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood, they are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants, O oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands thus far. Would you then turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to Lord's Day 4. You'll find that on page 873, question and answer 9, 10, and 11. Lord's Day 4, page 873. And I remind you that this, this is your confession of faith as it is mine question, but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sin. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God then also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he's also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Thus far, 
the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me. In Psalm 90, we've just read it, but in Psalm 90, we find a most humble and an appropriate prayer. It is a prayer from the very depths of our human misery, and it is relatively easy to simply sit back and admire the, the, the prayer, but, but we need to make that prayer our own in order for us to appreciate the subject before us this afternoon. But in order for us to enter into the spirit of that prayer, in order for us to make it our own, it is necessary, first of all, for us to understand the pure demands of God's law. And we must, again, recognize our inability to keep that law. And then further, we need to understand the nature or the origin of our inability. And you will remember, I hope, all of that that we learned from an early, the earlier sermons in this, in this series. But even more is required of us here. We need to go one step further. In Psalm 90, Moses sees human misery from the perspective of our own guilt. And he sees and identifies God's response to sin as divine wrath. And it's only when we capture that perspective that our plea for mercy will carry the proper meaning. And only then will our cry for compassion ring true and genuine as well. And all of that is contained in the confession we have before us this afternoon. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, man's guilt and God's justice. Man's guilt and God's justice. And this Lord's Day divides itself naturally into two main thoughts. So firstly, we want to consider God's justice seen in his giving of the law. Then secondly, we want to see God's justice in his demands of our obedience to that law. So man's guilt and God's justice, God's justice seen in his giving us the law, and then God's justice seen in his demands of our obedience to that law. The question reads, but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law that which man is unable to do? You will remember, I hope, from our last two Lord's Days that God commands perfect obedience and further, we were taught that this was a total inability for man. Man cannot do what is required of him. It's not a matter of simply, not, simply man choosing not to keep God's commandment, but it's a question of man's ability, or man's, if you will, his inability. It's a question of man's inability to keep God's commandment. Man cannot keep God's law, and yet God insists on our compliance, and the logical but unbiblical question is, is that fair on God's part? Is it fair that God demands of us something that we are totally unable to do? It is to that question that we are to first of all focus our attention upon this afternoon. My dear people, God, it is necessary that we pay close attention here for these doctrines that we have before us this afternoon have led to much error and confusion throughout all of church history. You see, logically, from a sin-darkened fallen mind, mind of fallen man, none of this makes any sense. But, but, but we need to abandon all human reasoning here 
and we need to listen carefully to God's word on the matter. For instance, as parents, if we would demand of our children to do something which is physically impossible for them, we would make ourselves guilty of provoking our children, and God clearly forbids that. So in our human minds, the question of fairness appears to have some validity. But we need to abandon our human wisdom and reasoning here, and we need to begin with the understanding that if God would demand of man to be something or to do something other than as he was created, then the question of injustice might perhaps be appropriate. For instance, if God created man as a fish and designed for him to swim in the water, and then he were to demand of him to fly through the air as a bird, then a whole different light would be cast upon this matter. Then perhaps it would be appropriate to suggest that God is not fair in his dealing with a fallen humanity. But, but according to the Bible, the demands of God are not of such a nature. What is required of man is that he keeps God's law perfectly. In other words, love God above all else and our neighbor as ourselves. That's what God requires. That's what God demands. And that commandment was entirely within man's capacity, for that is how he was created. God created man. God gave man the necessary gifts, the gifts that he needed to keep his law perfectly. Or if you will, God provided man with all that was necessary to keep that which was required. So God required this, but he gave what man needed in order to fulfill the requirement. But, but as we heard last time, although man was able to keep his law, it is now impossible for him. My dear precious saints of God, if we understand all of this in the context of what we have learned in our previous Lord's Day, then this whole argument about God's fairness begins to take on a little different color, doesn't it? You see, we learned previously, you will remember, that God created man good. In fact, God created man very good. In fact, he created him in his image. Man was created very good in God's own image. God created man with the necessary gifts to keep his law. And then we learn that man, through his own willful disobedience, lost those gifts. And consequently, he lost the ability to keep that law. And now the question before us is, since man has robbed himself of the ability to keep God's law, has God also lost his right to expect our compliance to that law. Perhaps an illustration is helpful. If I was to borrow a sum of money from you, and through my own carelessness was then to squander that money, if I was to take that borrowed money and, for instance, gamble it away, would you then also lose the right to demand repayment? If through my own foolishness it becomes impossible for me to repay my debt to you, would it then be unfair for you to still insist on payment? I know it's probably a poor illustration, but the answer is obvious. And in the same way, none of the demands to keep God's law perfectly have been diminished due to man's inability to keep it. But as sinful human beings, 
with sin-darkened fallen minds, we would be inclined to reason that since man has lost the ability, therefore it would be expedient or even incumbent upon God to renegotiate his demands to accommodate man's condition. Things are different now, God. You and I need to talk about this and renegotiate, God. You need to change your law, God, to accommodate my ability. That's the charge here being hurled at God. Maybe, maybe that's the way it was, God. But that's not the way it is now. Things are different. And so we need to renegotiate. But my dear people, God, we need to consider that charge carefully for a moment. God's law is an expression of God's own holiness. Could God remain God if he began to negotiate or began to act contrary to or in conflict with his own holy character? God had said, do this and live or do that and die. And man did. And man died spiritually. God kept his word. That's part of his holy character. Could we expect God to change his mind because the conditions have changed? Would God, could God remain God? Could he remain God if he did so? And besides, if God were to change his mind, if God were to renegotiate, what would happen then to our confidence in the abiding character of all the rest of his promises? If God reneged or changed his mind in this area, if God renegotiated, what possible reason would we then still have to have any confidence in any of his other promises? Because as we have needed them, maybe the conditions have changed. Maybe God has changed. But a second objection arises in our minds. Some are inclined to argue that yes, Adam and Eve were created with the ability, but not me. What has their sin to do with me? If I had been there in the garden, perhaps I would have responded differently. Why should I be held accountable for Adam's sin? Again, again in this reasoning, man seeks to shift the blame away from himself. And again, we need to understand carefully, and the, we need to understand that little phrase of the catechism, the phrase of the scripture, Adam robbed himself and all of his descendants. That's an important distinction. The phrase, that phrase points us the way here. We need to know that in paradise, Adam plunged not only himself, but all of his posterity into ruin. All of those who would yet be born of Adam's loins would now come into the world in this lost condition. That means every single man, every single woman, every single child. We need to remember here that the human race is not as a pile of sand, for instance, where all of the grains are separate from each other, but, but rather we must see it as a tree. It was where buds and blossoms and leaves and branches, trunk and roots are one organic unit. God had determined in his own wise eternal decree to bring forth from one blood, from one human pair, the entire human race. And therefore, in the beginning, he created one man, one woman, namely Adam and Eve, and from their loins were born all human beings who have since the beginning been born and all who will yet be born. And all of the human race is one organic whole with Adam as its federal head or Adam as their representative. Many people, God came to Adam 
in the garden. And God came to him as the representative of all of humanity. And he said, Adam, do this and live, or do that and die. Obey me, Adam, and live, or disobey me, Adam, and die. But, but, but Adam stands there as the federal head. Or if you will, he stands there as the representative of the entire human race. And so essentially, in essence, God was saying, Adam, do this, and you and all of your posterity will live. But if you do that, then you and all of your posterity will die. Obey me, Adam, and all of the human race will live. But disobey me, Adam, and all of mankind will die. The promise of blessing to Adam as well as the promise of curse to Adam, came to Adam and through him to each of us and our children. Because that's why scripture identifies our first father as the first Adam. Adam is to be seen as a foreshadowing of the Christ in the new dispensation. Christ is the second Adam. Christ came to do what the first Adam failed to do. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul repeatedly points us to Adam as our representative in sin, but then immediately goes on to teach us of Christ as our representative in salvation. Paul teaches us that sin entered the world through one man, namely the first Adam, and that through him all of mankind stands condemned, but then he also points us to the Christ through whom sinful humanity has been redeemed. And it is in that sense that we often speak of the first and the second Adam. And now we have the proper context to consider the question, does God do man an injustice by requiring of man what man is unable to do? And the answer then is no. God created man in good, good and in his image, but mankind as an organic unit, mankind as a whole, tempted by Satan, and in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and all of his descendants of these excellent gifts. It was through Adam that the very root of man became sinful and distorted, bearing consequences for that entire tree of humanity. Congregation, according to our Bible, in Adam, the entire human race is fallen. I often love that little quote. I use it here many times of, of, a, of, a, of a grade three reader that I had in the public school where we read, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Every man, every woman, every child conceived and born in sin. We hear it at the baptismal font every time we baptize a covenant child. Conceived and born in sin comes into this world unwilling and unable to keep God's law. And this inability is man's own fault. But, 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 man's inability did not alter God's demands of perfect obedience to the law. It is still the commandment, do this and live, do that and die. To us is still the commandment to keep all of his law in perfect detail. I remember well one of my parishioners years ago telling me that she is always relieved when we have finished this section of the catechism. I can understand that. She wanted to hurry past it. I can understand that because again this afternoon we are brought 
deeper and deeper into the very depths of despair. And if we had no further revelation in Scripture, man would here have a dilemma of the most horrible consequences. The demands of God's law stands firm, unalterable, and unnegotiable. Perfect obedience is required of us in order to live, and yet for us, impossible. Do this and live. God, I cannot do this and die. God, then I must die. Without any further word, without any other grace from God, apart from the great love of God, apart from God's electing love in Jesus Christ, all of us, each of us, and all of our children would, be, would die according to the justice of God as payment for our own sin. That's what the Bible tells us. Left on our own, there would be no hope. But the catechism continues. It's not yet done with us. It seeks to further humiliate us. It seeks to further convict us of our hopelessness apart from God's grace in Christ with the next question. Will God permit such rebellion and disobedience to go unpunished? An attempt is being made here to escape. To escape. Is it possible that God would ignore my transgression? If God is indeed a God of love, could he then not simply overlook or ignore my sin? That's the question being posited here. And the answer given us in Scripture is certainly not. God is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sin we personally commit. And as a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. My dear people, think again with me for just a moment of that dear child of God who told me she wants to hurry past this part of the catechism. We understand, I understand. This section strips us naked in our sin and sets us guilty before the judgment throne of God. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's painful. Frightening even. But, but listen carefully. The more we are brought to the very depths of despair in our understanding of God's justice, the more we will stand in awe and amazement at the great mercy of God, and the more we will become convinced of the riches of God's grace as that comes to its own unique expression in the Reformed faith. My dear people of God, those who would suggest that the Reformed faith is cold and uninspiring faith, thereby testify they have never understood the riches of God's grace. There is nowhere in all of Christendom where the riches of God's grace becomes to such, comes to such a true and a full expression as it does in the statements of faith as articulated and embraced by the Reformed churches. Walk carefully with me for just a few moments as we ponder here God's justice, first of all, indeed, but as we're also given a foretaste of that great mercy to follow. Walk with me. God is sovereign. And as sovereign creator, he has the right and the authority to set before his creatures his law. And he has the right and the authority to demand perfect obedience. 
The creature, man then, is under obligation to keep that law perfectly. Never may man refuse or attempt to negotiate, or may he, never may he himself determine what is good or what is evil. Never may we ourselves determine or reason what we believe, what we think would be pleasing to God. No, only God's word may be our criterion for that knowledge. When we fail to keep God's law, when we determine for ourselves what God will or will not permit, then God as judge calls man to account and deals with man as judge, as a judge deals with a lawbreaker. Therefore, the words, as a just judge, he punishes sin now and eternally. God punishes sin. However, a necessary distinction here must be seen by us. Punishment is not the same as chastisement. God chastises as father. He punishes as judge. It's a necessary distinction. The purpose of God's chastising is to draw us ever closer unto himself. But the purpose of punishment is a demonstration of his work as a just judge over against a transgressor of his law. God chastises his children, indeed, indeed, but he does so in love because, because for God's children, the punishment has already been removed. Rather, to be more correct, the punishment has been imputed, or if you will, transferred to Christ. The Christians suffering on this earth, though still the direct consequence of sin are now turned, if you will, into stepping stones to strengthen faith, to point them to the Christ, to draw them to the Father. However, the sins of the ungodly, the sins of the impenitent, the sins of the unbeliever are punished temporarily and eternally, meaning in this life and in the life to come. By punished temporally, we understand that all misery on this earth, sickness, sorrow, pain, suffering, financial concerns, broken lives, broken relationships, broken marriages, economic depression, wars, pestilence, disease, epidemics, hostility, rampant crime and violence, and finally death, the death that separates body and soul is, is a temporary punishment. And there's only a very small foretaste of the eternal punishment to follow. And although in this life God is patient and long-suffering at the close of life, when the impenitent sinner appears before the magistrate, then God's justice and God's holiness will come to its full expression according to our Bibles. God will punish sinners in eternity. This too is a doctrine that has become rather unpopular in our culture. Many contemporary theologians and so-called Christians have abandoned the clear testimony of Scripture on this matter for, for a teaching of a real hell does not fit in their concept of a God, a loving God. Such people have a false God, an idol, just as certainly as if they would have carved him with their own hands out of wood or stone. The Bible clearly teaches us that there is a place, a lake of fire, a place where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies, reserved for all who refuse to seek their life in Christ. It's a place, it's a place where men and women are ever being burned and yet never and never burned up. 
The rich man in the parable of Christ opened his eyes in hell and suffered excruciating pain. Not a drop of water was to be found for his burning tongue. People of God, the Bible te- Bible's teachings on this matter must cause us to shudder. And although we are given certain knowledge of the existence and the conditions of hell reserved for eternal punishment, our finite minds cannot even begin to fathom the full scope of such a punishment. Scripture identifies for us three aspects of hell. First of all, the place. In a certain sense, the place of hell will be distinct and divorced from God and his creation. For we know that creation and creatures will will be redeemed in Christ, but not so for hell. Ponder also the length of time of such punishment. It will be to all eternity. How do I describe that? How do I describe that concept? An eternity, a period of time that will never end. It's a concept we can't even begin to understand. And finally consider also the persons in whose company will be those who are in hell. Their company will consist of the devils and the damned of this earth. Persons whose hearts will no longer evidence even a hint of compassion or restraint. Any and all common grace which in this life restrained man from being as evil as he possibly could be are now lifted and men and women in hell will be completely abandoned to their own sinful lusts and desires. That's the company we will be in. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law. This curse is taught us in scripture as punishment now and condemnation eternally in hell. Congregation, it has been rightly observed by one of our church fathers that it is a horrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God, in his eternal decree, according to his just character, is angry about the sins with, with which we were born and the sins we daily commit. And although this truth is plainly taught us in Scripture, not, not to surprise us that the natural or the unconverted man, the, the unbeliever, rises up against such teaching and refuses to bow before the word of God. Natural man seeks escape from this condemnation and would obscure God's justice in pointing to God's love and God's mercy. Then the cry is heard, my God is a God of love. My God is merciful. A God of wrath is not my God. Correctly so. Because he who would sever God's wrath from God's love has no God. That's what the Catechism wants us to know in the next section of this Lord's Day where it is asked, but isn't God also merciful? And the answer then reads, God is certainly merciful, but he's also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Indeed, God is merciful. God is mighty in mercy, but he's also mighty in justice. Both are attributes of God. Both are taught us with equal vigor in the Bible and therefore cannot be separated or divorced from each other. And although God is indeed merciful, here we want to follow the leading of the catechism in our instruction of sin and its consequences this afternoon. We will hear much, Lord willing, we will hear much of God's mercy as we continue in our study of the catechism, especially in the section on our deliverance. But here we will restrict ourselves to the text of the catechism found in that section under man's sin and misery. We read God is merciful, but God is also just, and his justice demands punishment for sin. 
And here we learn that sin, personal sin, inborn sin, specific sin, and in general sin is an offense against the holiness of God and brings with it supreme punishment, death. The wages of sin, then as promised to Adam, and now the wages of sin is death. Remember again God's word to Adam standing in our place in the garden. When you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Death. It's a horrible word. That one little word, death, captures and encompasses all of the misery of humankind. Death. Think with me for a moment. As Christians, we know of three kinds of death. Temporary, spiritual, and eternal. In temporary death, we experience a severance of the bond between the body and the soul, which in God's fullness of time will be reunited in every born-again child of God. And this restoration of body and soul with God and in fellowship with him will not be so with the unbeliever who will remain alienated from God, resulting in a spiritual death. The bond of life created in man by God has been severed by sin. For those, there is also an eternal death. There is a hell reserved for all who refuse to come to Christ for a newness of life. Congregation, horrible things have been set before us. Horrible things have been given us for our instruction this afternoon. God's word has ripped our sinful, proud hearts out of our chest and has laid them in our hands for our inspection. And we have found them to be repulsive and repugnant. Who can there be among us who upon careful consideration of these things, who is there among us who can remain cold and unaffected? Remember well, according to the Bible, there are only two ways, there are only two roads, one leading to life eternal, one leading to eternal death. Every single man, woman, and child is on either one of those two roads. The one leads to a heavenly glory, the other to eternal condemnation. There is no other option. Many will follow the broad path and few will be seen on the narrow road. Which road are you on? It's a matter of life and death. What are you now going to do with what God has taught you this afternoon? How will you respond? Let us never forget that all, young and old, are on an earthly pilgrimage that culminates in an eternity. Remember with me also that there is a hell reserved for Satan and his angels where God will eternally punish sin and sinners. Remember that there's also still time today if we will harden not our hearts to seek forgiveness from God through Christ. Go to him then. Fall at the feet of a just and a merciful God. Plead with him that he would deal with us not as our sins deserve in his justice but that he will see us through the blood of the Lamb as the redeemed who will experience God's chastisement but will receive it in love because they've had their robes washed white in the blood of Christ. May it be so for each of us and our children. Shall we pray? Lord God, before thy clear and searching sight, our secret sins are brought to light. Beneath thy wrath we pine and die. Our life expires like a sigh. 
for three score years and ten we wait or four score years if strength be great. But grief and toil attend life's day and soon our spirits fly away. Oh, who with true and reverent thought can fear thine anger as he ought? Teach us to count our days. Set our heart on wisdom's ways. Turn, Lord, to us in our distress. In pity now, thy servants bless. Let mercy's dawn dispel our night and all our day with joy be bright.